Hi there. Uh, last week, I, I want to start with sort of a postscript to um, to last week, where I fetched about the proliferation of podcasts. And then I went ahead and created my first podcast, primarily to have fun with the paradox of podcasting to make the point of too many podcasts. Much to my surprise, I found there are quite a few downloads. One commentator wrote me that he was in that sweet spot I identified for podcast listeners. He was on the go so much that uh, he was a voracious podcast consumer. So I will continue offering a spoken version of the pancake. Listeners do miss out on the links, tables, and graphs I often include. Moreover, I will continue to create a pancake that is reading-centric, which results sometimes in sentences that may be more convoluted to follow than when in audio. But if you find you have the opportunity to listen more than you have the time to read, Help yourself to the Two-Sided Pancake podcast via Substack or Apple. So let me get into this week's topic. Should university legacy admissions be eliminated? Last summer, just weeks after the Supreme Court ruled against race-conscious admissions at colleges and universities, the Department of Education announced a civil rights investigation into legacy admission policies at Harvard University. They had been urged to take this action by three groups, the Chica Project, the African Community Economic Development of New England, and the Greater Boston Latino Network. Why are we rewarding children for privileges and advantages accrued by prior generations, asked Ivan Espinoza Madrigal, who is the executive director of Lawyers for Civil Rights, which was handling the case. He said, your family's last name and the size of your bank account are not a measure of merit and should have no bearing on the college admission process. That was the end of his quote. Legacies, that is the children or sometimes close relatives of alumni, are among a broader cohort to which selective colleges and universities, from now on I'll just say universities, may be given added preference in admissions. It may include recruited athletes, relatives of major donors, and children of faculty and staff. Overall at Harvard, legacy preferences make up under 5% of applicants. Even with the preference, 70% of those applicants are turned down for admission. Court papers say that two thirds of those admitted that way are white. Wesleyan University announced last July that it would end legacy admissions, explaining the practice was a distraction and a, quote, sign of unfairness to the outside world, end quote. For those clamoring for the end of legacy preferences, there may be two different arguments. One is that it undermines the notion of meritocracy. The second is that it favors rich white students over any black student. However, it is not a given that ending legacy and similar preferences would fundamentally change the makeup of admissions at Harvard or elsewhere. There's also the question of to what degree should government be determining the criteria for admission at private universities? Who would be helped by ending legacy criteria? 
In an interview in the Crimson, the Harvard student-run newspaper, Peter Arakiando, an expert witness for students for fair admissions in the Supreme Court case ending affirmative action preferences, questioned whether ending legacy admission would change the makeup of the admitted class. Quote, the thing is, when you get rid of legacy preferences, you want to be thinking about, well, who's going to come in to replace them? And that's going to look more like the admissions pool as a whole, he said. So it will still, it's still going to be more likely than not that it would be a white applicant who might replace them, end quote. That would undercut any expectation that the slots opened up would be filled by minority applicants. Writing in the Atlantic last year, Zoltol Gonzalez noted, quote, Ending legacy admissions will most likely mean only that wealthy children whose parents went to Brown will instead go to Yale or Columbia. There is simply no reason to think that the legacy slots will suddenly, and without affirmative action in play, go to low-income students of color, end quote. That is, if colleges do nothing else but eliminate legacy preferences, the slots that went to legacies will be filled from the same pool of applicants as before including some of those who would have qualified as legacies, even without the benefit of extra preferences. Moreover, at elite universities, the overwhelming number of legacy applicants who apply do not get letters of acceptance, giving some substance to the argument that legacy preference may be something of a tiebreaker when there is a large pool of attractive applicants, all of whom can't be accommodated. Thus, it would be difficult to ascertain by looking at the incoming class how its makeup would be different with or without legacy admissions. So how do elite universities create an incoming class? Ivy Wise, an admissions counseling service, explains how selective schools assemble an incoming class. It is a meritocracy, but not a totally objective one. They they say, quote, colleges want to build well-rounded classes made up of specialists who can contribute to the campus community in ways other than great academic performance. Taking only the applicants with the top grades and test scores may not make for a diverse or well-rounded student body. That is why in addition to the so-called hard factors, GPA, grades, test scores, of a student's application, college, colleges also place great weight on the soft factors like essays, extracurricular activities, recommendations, and demonstrated interest in order to gain a full picture of applicants, end quote. Recruiting athletes is an obvious example. Test scores and grades being roughly similar between two students, a high school All-American basketball player could fill a hole created by some impending graduated players. More subtly, the orchestra director might alert admissions that both bassoonists in the orchestra will be graduating. In that case, an accomplished bassoon player or two could find an acceptance letter, even if their SATs are a few points below some rejected applicants. Coming from the relatively thin applicant pool, say from North Dakota, might help a student over many who are applying from New York. Eliminating legacies does not level the playing field. 
The field is not meant to be level and never was. So what are some of the arguments for legacies? The case for legacies is not overwhelming. It's maybe not even strong, but there are some points worth considering and various university spokespersons have contended that their legacy preferences first may strengthen ties between university and its alumni. The alumni have a personal connection to the institution, more likely to remain engaged with the university after graduation, uh, offering financial support, mentorship, networking opportunities to current students and recent graduates. Another could be incentive uh, for alumni to donate to their alma mater, as they may more, be more inclined to give back to the institution that provided them with a positive educational experience. This additional funding can benefit the university and its students by supporting scholarships, research, and campus improvement. Another thing could be to preserve the traditions and culture of elite universities. Admitting legacy students who have a familial connection to the institution contribute to a sense of co continuity and community among students, alumni, and faculty. And it can be used for recruiting uh, for students. By offering preferential treatment to legacy students, universities can attract highly qualified students who may be more likely to accept an offer of admission, thus improving the university's selectivity and reputation. Jason Riley, writing in the Wall Street Journal, additionally suggests a possible unintended consequence of eliminating legacies. After several decades of affirmative action and mission policies, he says, quote, hundreds of thousands of black students have matriculated at selective universities and universities across the country, and their children stand to benefit from legacy admissions. Now that race conscious admission policies have been banned, legacies are one way for schools to maintain a racially mixed student body without violating Supreme Court's decision. The case for eliminating legacy preferences thus is not strong in that universities such as Wesleyan, MIT, and Amherst that have abandoned legacy admissions have not found negative consequences. Texas A&M dropped legacy preferences in 2004 and initially recorded a drop in alumni donations, but they soon rebounded robustly. So should government legislate admissions criteria. Legislation introduced in Congress by Senator Jeff Merkley and Representative Jamal Bowman would amend the Higher Education Act of 1965 to prohibit federal funds to universities that maintain a legacy preference, but not for all. The legislation exempts historically black colleges and universities, the HBCUs, Indeed, Ruth Simmons, who served as president of Prairie View A&M in HBCU, had been the first black president of an Ivy League school, Brown, and has been a strong proponent of alumni philanthropy at elite and minority serving institutions alike, arguing that ending legacy admission policies would devastate HBCUs. Brenda Allen, the president of Lincoln University and HBCU in Pennsylvania, has also defended legacy 
university admissions in general. Quote, legacies are about tradition. People have generations of folks who go to these institutions. My school is like that. We recruit family members. Her bigger concern is too much political interference when it comes to assembling a student body. She says, I think we should be allowed to use whatever tools we need to fulfill our mission. And being able to recruit legacies is important, especially at HBCUs, end quote. Should legislators be de determine what criteria private universities may, may use in the best interest of their institutions, even if receiving a few percent of their income from a government agency? If a university believes that having a successful sports team is good marketing, should it be penalized for giving athletes a preference? If it's not up for, if that's not up for regulatory fix, and I'm not aware of a movement to do so, then why penalize universities that believe that donors whose financial largesse can help provide scholarships for low-income families be precluded from doing so? So let, let universities determine what's best for them. To me, the bigger issue is this last one. Should legacy preferences be regulated, particularly at private universities? Conversely, there is no overwhelming empirical evidence that they are essential for recruiting or fundraising. However, there is also no solid data that ending them would fundamentally change the makeup of the admitted student body. If a university determines that admissions will not be negatively affected or even enhanced by proclaiming the absence of legacy preferences, then that is right for them to do. On the other hand, if it believes that it is in its best interest to have a diverse student body, it should have the flexibility to use whatever criteria sees, it sees appropriate that are not civil rights violations. That could be an added preference for bassoon players, Olympic caliber swimmers, North Dakota residents, or the sons and daughters of alumni. Thanks for listening. And I hope to uh, touch base with you again next week.